Welcome to episode 10 of Beyond Fear. Today we are speaking with Amber and Jason about the impact of sex offense policies, widely referred to as collateral consequences. In our last episode, I shared with you the history of these policies and their failure to prevent acts of sexual violence. In this episode, we will talk to two people about the individual, personal impact of these laws. We hope that their experience will highlight the need for changes to these policies. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina, and this is Beyond Fear. Amber and Jason are the creators and hosts of a podcast called Amplified Voices, where they speak regularly with people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. They began collaborating on the project after participating together in grassroots-level organizing in Connecticut, with groups including the ACLU and the Center for Rational Justice Studies. Most recently, Amber began serving as the executive director and Jason as the president of the Restorative Action Alliance. Amber is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and has over 20 years of experience in marketing, fundraising, and public relations for a variety of nonprofit and public organizations. She is a frequent speaker and panelist for presentations that explore the collateral consequences of criminal convictions and public registries. Jason earned a BS degree at Tufts University and an MBA at Columbia Business School, and he has worked in leadership roles at Fortune 100 companies and in smaller startups. Jason devotes significant time to volunteering, including previously serving as president of the board of his synagogue and mentoring small business owners. Amber and Jason each chose to become involved with advocacy as a result of lived experiences, and they can be found at Amber Speaks Up and at End the Registry, respectively, on Twitter. So thank you, Amber and Jason, so much for being here. It's great to see you both again. We just wanted to start and ask you to share a little bit each um, about how you came to be here and what brought you to this space and this work. Thank you. Thank you, first of all, um, Dr. Doctor, <laughs> <should we call you? laughs> um, for having us. Uh, it was it was nice to meet you. Uh, I think it was a year and a half ago now and yeah. in person. Yeah. And it's so wonderful to be um, to be here with you and very honored to be asked uh, to, to join your your podcast. And we've been listening. We've both been listening. I know Amber's been listening, and we we love it. So thank you for the work that you're doing. But you read in the intro that it's from lived experiences. So I am someone who did commit an offense uh, in 2008. It was uh, not my finest moment. Um, not something that I'm proud of. But I am proud of everything that I've done uh, since. So I was living living my life. Um, I was on probation. I came off probation. And as you mentioned, I was the president of my synagogue at one point. I was asked to join the board. And while I was on, on, I became president and was doing a great job. And uh, there was what I would refer to as a moral panic um, around me, not because of anything that I had done in 2018, but because of something I did in 2008. And so that became um, you know, all of a sudden it was in the, it was in the, the, the local newspaper. It was in the, and it made the press, it made the, the uh, national news. 
and it was it was just a horrible you know when we talk about collateral experiences it was horrible and prior to that point I thought you know I'm just going to live a, a decent life and live and I'll be an advocate by example right I thought that would be enough and when this happened to me I said you know what if, th if this can happen at this point after doing everything right after being the type of person that I am then this can happen to anybody and I need to do more. I need to get involved. And that's, and that's what I did. So for the last few years, I've been getting more and more involved in advocacy and um, had this idea as, we've, as I've heard more stories from other people finding that I'm not unique. Um, and that's when we talked about doing this podcast um, called the Amplified Voices to hear other people's stories and let them, let them speak and share. So Amber, did you want to share a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I often say that, uh, you know, I kind of come to uh, this issue, if you want to call it an issue, um, from a lot of different aspects. So um, first and foremost, you know, I uh, have been in the situation where I was um, the victim of a sexual assault. And so this is something that happened to me while I was serving in the military. And at the time, I didn't know how common the experience was. It was very harmful to me. It caused me to act in certain ways that I normally wouldn't have. And so we'll kind of leave that there. So fast forward about 20 years into the future. And, um, you know, I, like Jason, was just kind of living my life and, um, you know, doing what I thought I should do. And uh, there was a situation where my husband was accused of a sexual offense. And um, through the whole process of the criminal legal system and um, everything that kind of goes along with that, we found ourselves in a situation where he really had no real choice except to take a plea deal. And so he is uh, living as someone who's required to register, which in turn um, requires us all to register. And, and I'm sure we'll get more into that. <laughs> um, we have four children, so it does affect um, their lives. So that's how I came to this, this work. I've always been um, involved in nonprofit organizations and causes, and this particular moment from day one, I was like, how do we fix this? Oh, my goodness. I feel like the veil's been taken from my eyes. I learned about the criminal justice system, racial disparities, everything that went along with that. And from day one, I'm on the phone like, where's an organization that can help this? How do I get involved with it? It's just the kind of person that I am and have always been. So that's how I kind of came to advocacy, met Jason through some of those efforts, um, and a lot of our goals aligned. We had some discussions. We said, hey, like, we're, we're definitely not alone. And how do we amplify people? Um, so that's where the kind of the idea for the podcast was born. Yeah. And I'd just like to add on to something she's, that Amber said there that once you start seeing things, it, it, you see so much injustice. And it's like, you know, once you see, you can't unsee. And it's yeah. just... Um, you know, it's unbelievable to me. Like if I hadn't, if I hadn't done what I did and gone through this process, I'd be, I'd be blind to all of it and, and be, um, I, I like the person I am today, 
more than the person that I would have been had I not gone down this path. So uh, in our last episode, we talked about the fact that research is clear that registration and notification and residence restrictions are completely ineffective. We briefly talked about the collateral consequences of these policies, but hearing from advocates with lived experience offers, I think, uh, a much more important perspective. So we were hoping that you could each talk uh, a little bit about the major issues with these policies or the collateral consequences of these policies, broadly speaking. It's hard. It's harder to, to to go right to the broadly speaking. You know, you you cover that from an academic standpoint in terms of of uh, you know pe- people not being able to find a place to live or people. But I can tell you, even from my own. You know, I'll take it back to my own experience. I bought a couple of houses while I was on the registry, you know, because just because of circumstances. And the first time I was on probation, the second time I wasn't. But the first time I moved, I bought a new house. And I was really doing it so that my daughter could come live with me. She was in college, in high school at the time. And um, I went, I went to buy the house and being on probation, I had to get permission. So imagine trying to make a bid on a house, also get somebody who's not going to necessarily be responsive to you, say, okay, that house is okay. But then worry about the fact that when I move into that neighborhood, people are going to all know who I am. And that's the very first thing they're going to know about me. Um, and I had no idea what that was going to be, what that was going to do or what that was going to be like. So that was a very, very stressful and added component to just, to just moving into a, a neighborhood. Um, the second time I, I bought a house, I was off, um, I was off, excuse me, I was off probation, but still on the registry. And I was buying the house with the, the woman who's my wife now. She was my fiance at the time. And we were moving into a neighborhood and or, or we were going to be moving into, we, we put a bid on a house and it turns out that um, the owner of the house decided to tell some of his neighbors that he found out that I was on the registry. And all of a sudden, before I even moved into this neighborhood, it was going all over the, all over the town. Um, and, it, and so that was just, I mean, those are just, they seem like they're little things, but it's just an added stress stressor all the time. Um, so, I mean, those are, that's, that's, so that's, you know, housing and, and, and trying to figure that out. I've got one, um, uh, e- even now that, um, you know, I, I have some investments uh, and there's a bank that's evaluating whether they want to keep me as a customer or not. Um, there's no reason for them to kick me out um, from being their customer. But because of the fact that I'm on, I, w- I was on the registry and because I did commit this offense, um, they're, they're evaluating it. So, I mean, these are I'm giving you a couple of things that just popped into my head. Um, but there's a million things with with um, with the children um, especially when they were younger, uh, not being able to go into the school, uh, you know, so Amber's got some really good stories about school, but, um, like with my kids, I would have to, if I was dropping them off, I'd have to park about uh, half a mile away and they'd walk to go to the school or half a mile. And, and, you know, I'm sure the other students knew what was going on. Um, and it just reinforced every single time that I was different. So it puts a little, you know, just just extra added stress into the family. It's hard to know where to begin when you start talking about collateral consequences, because if you think about some of the impacts of these policies 
it really affects every single aspect of not only the person who is subject, not not just to public registration, which is a huge problem, but also to the general, like all of the policies that kind of go along with that. The list kind of goes on and on. But, you know, to kind of talk about, you know, what Jason was referring to in terms of the story with the school. So, um, you know, we have four children and we have uh, children ranging from, well, two of them are adults, so they'll be upset that I said they were children, (laughs) but uh, ranging from 22 years old down to seven. So, you know, we, we have kind of the whole gamut. And so when uh, one of my daughters uh, began high school, this was shortly after um, our situation. My husband had kind of uh, returned home from incarceration, was required to register, was on probation, got all of the permissions to go to the school um, because she was kind of having a hard time adjusting to the new high school, which was much larger um, than the school she had come from. And, you know, everything that just goes along with with this time in your life, right? Like Mm -hmm. life doesn't stop just because you have these other issues going on. So she's having a little bit of a hard time adjusting. So we're like, we're going to meet with her guidance counselor. <clears throat> so we think, you know, okay, we're going to we're going to set up this meeting. We did everything we were supposed to do. And um so it was the day of the meeting. Now we go into the school and we uh go to the front desk like we'd done so many times before. We check in and you know, I give them my ID and everything's fine and then my husband hands the ID and she runs it through, you know, this system or whatever. And the her eyes just get larger than, like, they look like saucers. And she starts waving her hands and say, saying very loudly, I need security here. And so if you can imagine being, like, in an office, in a school, and this happening, so what then ensued was the you know security come and they escort us in a very public fashion from the office to the guidance area now my my daughter's not there she's already in the office thank god in the guidance office but along the way, all this, the hallways are filled with students and they're, you know, everybody's wondering why we're being escorted by security. Um, and all of this to help my daughter adjust, right? <laughs> like, had, had we known that this was going to happen, like, my husband just wouldn't have gone. Yeah. Yeah. So if you take, you know, you, you talked about speaking more broadly. The, the issue is that the registration, I mean, besides it being ineffective, it, it affects every single person in the household. Yeah. Um, so, Jason, are there any uh, specific experiences that, you know, have happened to you or your family members due to you being a registrant that you... Um, you know, you think are important to share with our listeners? You know, the the thing about being on the registry is that you never know when something is going to happen. It can pop at any time. And it mm-hmm. it's happened to me um, 
places I've tried to volunteer and they say, oh, you can't volunteer here because you're a registrant, um, you know, where you're trying to do something good in the community. Yeah. It's happened to me at work where we've had uh, people that we've tried to hire and they say, oh, you're a, you know, you're, and they use the words, they use the label, you know, you're, you've got a sex offender working there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes people don't say it and they just act weird and disappear, yeah. um, which is even, which is even worse. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's so there's volunteering. There's work. There's having um, uh, family members who are turned away from volunteering and doing other things um, because they're because they're in the home with someone who's a registrant. So uh, I've had all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, the personally, the personally, the biggest thing was the, the what I described earlier with the synagogue. So Amber, um, what has been your experience navigating this work, both as a survivor and as a family member of someone impacted by sex crimes policies? Well, I really appreciate that question because um, it becomes very complicated. Just like, you know, we talk all the time about how humanity in and of itself is complicated. Um, But finding yourself in a in a position where you you almost people want to make it out to be such an us and them zero sum all of these things you're either this or you're that it's always trying to silo you know where you fit in and so you know i like like you guys have been called a rape apologist um i've had people survivors who are, you know, in the midst of their own journey, um, which, of course, I can empathize with and understand and and have felt, attack me because of their own pain. Because I'm saying, you know, let's take a step back and figure out how we stop this. Like, at the end of the day, you can be so wrapped up in your own pain from what's happened to you. And I'm sorry, I'm going to disclaim, I'm a little bit of a crier. <laughs> so if it happens, it happens, guys. Um, but the harmful nature of being attacked um, because you're standing up for what is injustice regardless of where you fit in is very harmful. Having said that, we all feel the same things. You know, what I've learned through this process is we all feel the same things. So when I experienced an assault, I felt shame. I was harmed. It didn't stop. It didn't go away. And it, it, it's something that you live with. On the same token, living under the oppression of the registry for your whole entire family. I feel shame. I'm harmed. It's all the same. It's the same, but different. And sometimes the chronic nature of the oppression of the registry, and this might be unpopular, but I'm going to say it because it's how I feel. I feel is more harmful than having been raped. 
And I'm sorry, I just need a second. Yeah, don't apologize. Take all the time you need. That is not taking away from anybody else's experience. This is just my own experience. Do you want to say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Because I think those of us who do this work, who understand um, this process, uh, you know, and Alexa and I understand it from an academic perspective, you know, we do not know what it is like to live with being a family impacted by the registry. We know it from the academic space, but we do know what it feels like to live as yes. survivors. But holding both of those, the, the statement you made was very, very powerful. So I'm wondering if you can expand on it. What I mean by that is there's a certain... When, so, when you talk to somebody about being a survivor, people validate that it's okay for you to feel a certain way about the injustice that you have endured, the harm that is happening to you. When you talk about the registry and how that harms you, it depends on who you're talking to as to whether they acknowledge that as harm. And being invalidated that, you know, well, you have a choice. You could leave. That You're putting yourself in this situation. It's similar to the way that you victim blame somebody who's experienced an assault. So it gets all wrapped up um, in harm, piled upon harm, piled upon harm. Thank you. I know that the, that was not an easy question to answer, and I appreciate your willingness to do so, so vulnerably. And I think it's really important for our listeners to hear. Absolutely. You know, it's, and it's just, it breaks my heart to hear that, you know, people who I care about are having these horrific experiences and that, you know, Jason, when you were sharing about the synagogue and Oh, I'm getting teary-eyed. I I don't have to worry about moving to a new house and people knocking on my door and asking me what it was like to be raped or saying, you know, I think you lied about it or something like that. You know, I don't have to worry about that. So it's different in that way where everyone literally is knows about a horrible the a horrible thing that happened. Um, right. And that you are not the sum total of that. Right. And and the laws, the laws can change at any time and they mm -hmm. have and they get worse. And, right. and Connecticut has some things that are bad and some things that aren't as bad as in other states. In some states, you um, move into a new area and you have to pay to, to print off pages and have them uh, have every single one of your neighbors notified before you ever walk in. In some places, you can't live uh, close to a school, you know, I mean, in, and so what does that mean? Right. And mm -hmm. so that, and you, you've talked about these things, but I mean, it can really, um, the fact that the laws can change and they're vague and they're mm -hmm. confusing. I mean, I came off the registry in Connecticut 
but there's still this thing called federal SORNA and there's all sorts of confusion around what does that mean? What if I want to go, my collateral consequence, here we go. Mm -hmm. My father has a brother who's 90, I think he just turned 98 or 99 years old and he lives in Florida and the brother, the brother wants my father, and this was, you know, pre-pandemic too, you know, he wants my father to come down there desperately. Mm -hmm. And my father doesn't want to go alone. He wants me to go with him. And I said, I will not step foot in Florida because Florida, when it comes to these laws, is is horrific and inhumane. And so, and I'm sorry for any listener of yours that's in Florida, um, but they know it because they live it. And so I would not step foot in Florida um, under these conditions. And it's really hard to explain that to my 85-year-old father and his 99-year-old brother. Do you want to say a little bit about why Florida in particular is so awful? So with Florida, anyone who's committed a sex offense who goes to Florida, uh, they have very little time to uh, register and to to notify Florida that they are in the state of Florida. And once they do, they are put on the registry and they are put on the registry not only for life, but there are reports of people staying on the registry after death. So um, that's that's the big thing. I mean, they've they've got these uh, restriction laws for people who live there that there are count as we know in uh, like Miami-Dade County where people there's like no place where they can live it was featured in uh, David Feige's Untouchable where they where he showed people that were um the only place that they could live was on a little strip um and so it's just it's very very easy to get jammed up and end up committing another felony um try even when you're trying to do the right thing can you say a little bit more about like the the committing another felony. It's not actually the commission of another crime. Right. The crime itself is is not registering when you're supposed to or being uh, staying somewhere that is a restricted zone inadvertently. Um, so that that's what I mean by committing the felony. You know, Alexa and I both, you know, on this podcast and in our writing and elsewhere talk a lot about the importance of changing these policies. And Jason, you talked a little bit about how these policies change all the time, and it's usually for the worse. Um, Could the two of you talk a little bit about why actual positive change to legislation is so important? What would that mean for the two of you and your families and for other people who are required to register? One of the things, uh, like Jason mentioned, is that, you know, you kind of live under this constant microscope and it's um, it's a constant fear. So one of the biggest policy changes is the public nature of the registry, because, listen, when we talk about jobs, housing, all those kind of things, it really has to do with landlords, employers, things like that, really not wanting to be associated with somebody that they know has committed this type of offense and putting their business at risk. And listen, 
I'm not here to say that I blame somebody. Do you want a house that you own, that you rent out, to be subject to being on the public registry? Then that reflects on you. As an employer, do you want the general public to associate your business with something so negative? So when we talk about, you know, how ineffective the policies are, you know, and incremental change, which we could have a whole a full podcast about whether we need incremental change or abolish the registry or or, or what, you know, different people think about that. Um, but a start would be to look at the public nature of the registry and how that creates many of the most harmful um, effects. The other thing is when we start talking about this idea of proximity restrictions and, um, you know, uh, actually residency restrictions. So, for instance, in Connecticut and in the area where we live, we have things called child safety zones, which um, I don't call them child safety zones because they don't provide safety to children. They are citizen exclusion zones. And frankly, they are family exclusion zones because um, my children can't go to certain parks and places and whatnot because um, in order to support our family, I'm always working and the primary caregiver is my husband. So he can't go in those zones. So my children are essentially excluded from those zones as well. So those are very harmful. They render people homeless. They cause a lot of friction in communities. And um, they're just not doing anything. So those are two of the policies that if we change, we started with some of that, if we're talking incremental, would make a huge difference in the day-to-day lives of people who um, are living under this oppression. So, you know, going, you, you mentioned um, earlier, you asked, you asked the question broader and we answered specific and then we get, we got you all off track here and now you're asking about policy and I want to go back to broader for a second. So, you know, as, as, as I'm hearing Amber speak, there's, there's two other big things, collateral consequences, you know, that, that really need to be addressed. One is employment. Right. So, um, you know, I'm somebody I was educated. I have um, I have a degree from a top school. I had I had 20 years of experience before I committed my offense and I was able and, and it was difficult for me. Right. So it was difficult for me. I found myself in a position where no major company would hire me. I took a couple of jobs in the interim where people took advantage of me because um, they knew, but I think it's really easy to find yourself, um, find somebody who's, who's in a situation who's desperate for work to find themselves in a situation, especially if they don't have an education. You know, for me, uh, I was able to, to I, you know, I ended up meeting somebody who took a chance on me and I was able to, to get work. And, you know, over time I've been able to rebuild back to a, a level where it's, you know, from, from a, from a mental health standpoint, I'm better than I was before. From a financial standpoint, I'm not where I would have been. Um, but I'm very, very happy there. But many people, we've talked with many people who are unable to get jobs. You know, I, I, talk, I talk with a couple people regularly who say, you got anything, you got any leads, got any leads, because they just can't, they get, they get so close and 
Um, there, you know, we we had one guy tell us a story about how he walked into a job uh, placement center here in Connecticut, and they and he said, "I'm I'm unemployed." They said. Okay, you came to the right place. He said, "I'm a veteran." They said, "Even better." He said, "I, I committed an offense. I have a, I have a, um, I, you know, I have a criminal record. That's okay, felony. We can work with that. It's a sex offense. Let me get my manager. That's that's happening. You know, people, and it's like you commit this offense, and we, we, we just can't, we just can't have you. So, what's open to you? It's, what's open to you is opening your own business. So you go and you open your own business and you put everything into it. And then somebody decides, and this comes to my second point, somebody decides to make an issue of you. And the next thing you know, such and such business is run by sex offender. And that's all over the news. So your, your, your business is shut down. So you either work for somebody else or you work for yourself and you risk, you risk um, putting yourself out of business because of that. So there's, there's so many, it's so hard to, um, it's so hard to get going. And if you, you know, what, what should that look like? That really should look like if somebody has, has done some harm, but they, you can, you can tell they're really putting in the work to make a difference. You acknowledge that and you, and you reward them for doing the right things for, for, for working, for volunteering, for being good family members. You want to encourage people to do stuff. And we don't, we do the exact opposite. We say, you are the monster. You sit over there, and then we ignore all the other stuff that's going on um, that that people overlook in their own homes. And the second is the media. You can you can literally go out and save somebody from a fire if you are someone on the registry. What they're going to publish is sex offender was in the building uh, inappropriately. You know, it doesn't matter what it is; it's going to be sensationalized. There are a few. There are a few media folks who who um, who are really good and they won't do that. But the overwhelming majority are going to find that way of spinning it. They're going to put the label on and they're going to and they and whether it's the media or they're going to find a way of making they're going to put a negative motive to whatever it is that that person's doing. And instead of praising them, they're going to put them down and that rolls over. So, you know, when you talk about policy change, you're not going to get any policy change until you get a culture shift where people, you know, where if, if a legislator comes forward and says, I stand by this, that they don't get a million people saying he is uh, or she is, um, you know, that that particular legislator is making excuses for rape or for, or for any of these things. So the point that you made, Jason, about, you know, they're the sex offender, they go over there. Um, you know, we can work with somebody who's committed a felony. We can't work with somebody who's committed a sex offense. Why do you think, and either one of you can answer this, um, why is it or what is it that causes people to think that somehow people who commit sex offenses are different from anybody else? We have, we had those horrific cases in the 90s that were well broadcast right and everybody and so everybody is saw that the few children were abducted and they were murdered and um and they were horrific they were horrific and we named laws after them and we said and then we had this whole thing with um it goes back to the 1986 article in psychology today 
where they said that the chance of somebody committing another sex offense after they've committed an offense is frightening and high, as high as 80%. So we've been telling people over and over and over again that if somebody's committed one offense, they've committed thousands of offenses. And we've had some cases that have come out that are extreme cases, like you know, like Larry Nasser, where you you, know, you find all these people that come out of the wick, or Jeffrey Epstein, right? So everybody envisions that anyone who's committed an offense is is doing all of these things, and that even after someone's been convicted, there's just something different about their DNA that makes them um, go out and commit offense after offense after offense, and they just can't help themselves. And this has been beat into us by the courts. It's been beat into us by the law and orders it's and, and the criminal minds. And it's part of our, it's part of what every movie we see and people use this terminology. And I don't care if you're somebody who's um, politically to the right or politically to the left, both sides have been uh, dr- drilling this in. And whenever there's an, whenever there's a law, we have to carve out uh, sex offenses because they are the worst of the worst, and it's just we've we've just bought it, we've bought it, and it's not because you know somebody hasn't. It, it's a separate offense. It's we we've um, we've put this moral judgment to it, and it's separate. It's not you know. So there's there's abuse, and then there's sexual abuse, um, and we and so I think that that's where that's how we got here. So, Jason, when I met you in person uh, a year and a half ago, uh, you gave me a pin and it says, I am human and it is on my bag. It comes with me everywhere I go still. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and, and what that saying means to you, given the answer that you gave to the previous question about you know, this small group of people who committed these really heinous offenses and this one article from Psychology Today that really doesn't represent the vast majority of people who commit sex offenses, this very simple statement, I am human. That's a good question. I, you know, I think it just, it just reminds me and that we are all, we, we, are, we all have something in common. You know, we're all I mean, I am human. Humans make mistakes. Human do th- humans do things that they regret. And you know, so do you want do you want somebody who's never been tested and who you know or in your circle or do you want someone who's 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 made some mistakes and learned from them? Um you know, I think that the difference is being able to learn from what you've done. Uh, and and what impacted you? And one of the things that we've learned, you know, I knew I knew before, but we've really it's really reinforcing doing this podcast. You know, one of the things we ask people is, what what happened to you? You know, what what brought you into that um, to commit the type of offense that you committed? And you know, it's 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 such a it's such an um, interesting question because you know pe- people don't just wake up one day and offend. Um, you know, it's it's. People, people are harmed, and you know I've made the comment before that unresolved trauma multiplies, right? So, if we can, um, if we can identify that and start to heal the trauma, that's what's important. And I think you know we're all, we've all 
we've all been hurt. Um, I don't think any I've ever met anybody who hasn't been hurt along the way, right? Everybody's been hurt by somebody along the way to varying degrees. We do react differently to different circumstances, but nobody has an identical circumstance. And I think that being open to the humanity of each other and looking beyond the worst that people have done and saying, you know, what happened to you and realizing that there's that there's always a path for for that person. And a lot of times it's up to the rest of us. If somebody is out there causing harm, we have a choice that we can either help guide them towards a better path or we can shut them out and and ultimately they they might end up doing more damage because they there's no other path. So um, how do you, uh, what kind of world do you want to live in? I mean, I want to live in a world where as many people are healed as possible. So we've talked a lot about, in the last episode specifically, we spoke about how really these pieces of legislation have done nothing to prevent sexual violence in our communities. And so we're curious to know um, what each of you thinks, uh, what needs to change um, in order to actually prevent sex crimes. We've got to stop creating the exact conditions, right, with these policies that cause people's social networks and, uh, you know, basic needs to break down. Because, you know, as, again, you know better than me, the research tells us this is what these type of conditions are what cause people to have, you know, cognitive distortions that, you know, they they reason that, you know, doing certain things are OK. Right. So we've got to we've got to look at what these policies are actually creating for the people who are subject to them. Right. So so we have to look at that. Then we have to. Or simultaneously, right, we have to look at primary prevention, okay? So, you know, we don't talk to, uh, because of our, you know, feelings about sex in the country, right? We don't really focus on early discussions and education for children around, like, what healthy sexual relationships look like, and then we create this culture where everything is over-sexualized. And then when children kind of um, respond to that in, in a natural or unnatural type of fashion, we then criminalize them, throw them in jail, and then they become, you know, the other, the monster, right? So those are, are the things that we really need to look at when we're looking at making our priorities from a legislative standpoint, like where are we spending our money, right? We're spending our money on policies that just don't work and they cause the exact conditions that create the problem we're trying to solve. I would add that you have to make it so that if someone is struggling that they're able to come forward without major consequences, right? So today, if somebody is having some sort of a problem, either, you know, some sort of sexual problem, they, they, if they come forward, they risk everything. Um, so, you know, you, you need to make, you need to make a path and we need to figure out how to, how to do that and make it so that it's, um, you know, somebody can get the help and then, and then move on, you know, treat people as more than just this, uh, uh, offense. 
It's that idea of when you extend your hand, you actually help the person rather than pushing them further, you know, further down. And I think that's what our reaction much of the time is, is that people are so fearful with good reason about what could happen if they share this issue that they're having. Why would you come forward? We, we had a few people talk to us about their experience, particularly in the military or, or spouses' experiences. And when they came forward, actually, there was a woman that we haven't aired yet. Um, you know, when they went when they went to counseling, the answer that they were given was just suck it up, um, you know, before they committed the offense. So, you know, when people do reach out for help, there has to be somebody on the other end that's that's there to um, to offer to, to give that help and, and, and not minimize and not just say suck it up, you know, and, and you know, while that. I don't know how often that happens for men or women, but, um, you know, certainly for men, if they go to other men, they probably would be told, suck it up, you know, be a man, that sort of thing. So I think that we, you know, that, that aspect of the culture has to shift in terms of, um, you know, being able to talk and being able to acknowledge. And I think just having open discussions and dialogue without, um, you know, without, without the moral police coming on, you would actually save more people. So, this is, I feel like, a really important question given we've been talking a lot about collateral consequences. So were you, either of you or both of you at all concerned about going public with your podcast? And, and have you received any negative reactions from people? When we you know, started talking about the podcast, we wanted it to be you know, real people, real stories um, in their own voices in the way that they wanted to share their experiences, right? So um, when we first started the podcast, we did a little intro. You notice that we have like two intros on our podcast. So we put out the first one, and um, I I got some negative feedback from family members. Um, not like immediate f- family, but negative feedback um, in terms of, Oh, are are you over here condoning criminality and harm and and you know what are you trying to say here? So um, yeah, I mean, and and frankly, because of the person I am and all the people I've worked with and whatnot, I I wasn't concerned about it until I got that feedback. <laughs> um, so you know, we we went back and did another kind of clarifying conversation. Is is the second intro that we did. So um, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, again, where we come from. We're not apologetic for making people um, or treating people as humans, no matter what they have in their past. But on the other hand, accountability and dealing with actions that somebody has taken is very, very important to us. When I do advocacy, I've gotten pushback. I've lost friends. I, you know, that's a collateral consequence. But when I first kind of got into the advocacy thing, my biggest concern was um, my children. Like, how is this going to affect my children? But the fact of the matter is I came to the situation and the, the mindset that if I don't do this, how is that going to affect my children? Am I worried about going public? So the answer is uh, mixed. 
you know, we gave you um, the bio for this. I think we have our last names in there. Um, I don't remember if we've said that at the beginning, but typically, maybe not. So typically when I'm doing the podcast and when I'm doing this, I don't use my last name um, because, you know, it, 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 has, it has bit me a few times already. Um, so I, and I don't know that my, I don't know that who I am is as important as the story. Um, but as far as the work that we're doing on the podcast, I, I think that, um, I've, I've been very proud and, and, you know, and, and Amber, I'm very proud of the work that she's doing and her, and, um, and our editing team, very proud of them, you know, and I think that the work that we're doing to let people really tell their stories in a way that honors the whole story, not just their offense, because when somebody commits offense, they usually hear about the worst thing they did, but you never hear about the rest of those people. They just become the offense. So I'm really proud of the work we're doing with the podcast. I think it does show pe- showcase people as human. Um, am I worried? The answer is uh, y- yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely worried. But um, as we talked about earlier, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I have some experiences and I have some benefit to share. And here's the most important part for me is if I can't do some good, if I can't, if I can't make sense of, if I can't help the world in some way because of what I did, then it's just an awful thing that happened. Yeah. But if I can use that for good, if I can help make positive change, if I can help people see that I'm human, that other people are human, if I can actually make our society better, then I'm living those Jewish values. I'm living the values that I have and, I, and I'm being true to myself. That's for my health. That's for other people. And so that's, that's, the, that's where, what I want to do. That's the, I'm thinking about my legacy. When I go, I don't want them to say, you know, sex offender dies at whatever, hopefully, you know, 90, whatever. But, <laughs> um, but it says he led a very full life and he did a lot of positive things in the world. Um, that's what I'd like. Yeah, absolutely. That is a perfect ending to this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, you guys are amazing. Thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. It was really, really wonderful having you on. I'm sorry just to cry. I'm sorry that I'm a cry. No, no. <laughs> no, it's all good. It is all I had my moment yeah. in episode five where I lost it. <laughs> we all have them. So <laughs> We all have them. It's a human reaction, you know. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or even questions about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, and readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.